Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is continuing his great North American tour uh, of spring 2022. How are things, Frank? David, they are great. Yes, I think when I last spoke to you, was I in Connecticut? You were in Connecticut last time. I think so. You you have traveled the country and back since then. Yes, I'm now in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. But uh, between uh, then and now, I I have been to California and back. So we had uh, a couple of events, uh, one in San Francisco, well, a couple of events in San Francisco and a couple of events in L.A. uh, And I'm now back on the East Coast. A jet setter. Okay, great. In the nation's capital. Good. Okay. Talk, talking to be, And it's Tartan Day. Uh, So happy Tartan Day, Frank. I know that's your favorite day of the year. Uh, yes, David, and, and long-time listeners will know I have opinions, I have views, but but now is not the time for that. Now is for not those. Time but yes, yes, so so yes, happy Tartan Day to you too. I'm going to an event. Uh, I'm going to an event later today. Uh, well, we've we've got an event here in Washington, and then after that, I'm going to a reception sponsored by the Scottish desk at the uh, at the British Embassy here in Washington. So uh, um, like in, in honor of Tartan Day. Well, you know, we all serve in our own ways, David. <laughs> so, so, David, we're going to do something different this week. We have an author. As longtime listeners will know, we occasionally interview authors of books uh, and, and new books and books that interest us, especially in the field of American history. And so today... We want to interview, um, let me see if I have his name correctly. Is it Dan, Dan Silkenat? <laughs> Something uh, like that, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 David Silkenat of the University yes. of Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> so yes, David, you have a new book out. And, I, and I, today, we. so first of all, congratulations. Oh, Secondly, I want to uh, ask you a few questions about your book so our listeners can hear about it. So, so uh, t- first of all, can you tell us uh, the title of the book and when it was published. Okay, so the, the title of the book uh, is Scars on the Land, an Environmental History of Slavery in the American South. Uh, here I'm showing, frankly, pretty yellow cover. Um, it was published on the 1st of April of this year. So right. just, uh, just less than a week ago. Excellent. Um, yeah, my last two books have been published on April 1st. I'm not sure what that pub- <laughs> means publishers think about my scholarship, but... Uh, but there we are. Well, congratulations, and, and we should say that Oxford University Press is the is the publisher of this book. Yes, yes, yes. They are. Um, and so, and, and was it published in both the UK and US on April first on the same day? Uh, or is that no, no. I think dates? it's it's, a, it's one of these things where where the the American publication date is a month before the UK publication date. So, uh, I think the UK publication date is sometime in mid May. Okay, excellent. So, so, so British so, listeners will have to wait for a month before. Uh, where they get their copy. So this is all part of the massive marketing campaign. Exactly. Enthusiasm exactly. For the book. Right. Okay. For, so for David, the global release. Yes. So David, um, uh, tell us what the book's about, please. Sure. So the book uh, looks at the sort of two centuries of, of slavery in the American South. And it asks two re- related questions. One, how did slavery as, a, as an institution affect the environment? How did it reshape the landscape? How did it change um, the land itself? And the second question that the book tries to, to address is, is what was the effect of the environment, of the, the, the natural environment upon the lives of the enslaved? So how does 
in short, how does the, the environment shape slavery and how does slavery shape the environment? Uh, and, and the argument the book makes is that slavery as an institution um, have a particular kind of effect upon the environment that enslavers saw uh, the natural environment largely as disposable. They saw land as, as a resource to be used up and then replaced. They saw rivers and trees as, as resources that they could exploit. Um, and that there was a certain kind of ethos built into slavery about how one relates to the environment uh, that led to very devastating effects on, on the landscape, on the, the flora and fauna of the American South. Um, and that, and this sort of on the other sort of half of it, is that the natural environment was a really important factor in the lives of the enslaved, whether that's, you know, the soil that they are walking in, the, the, the water that they are drinking, the, you know, the trees that they are living under and cutting down, uh, the weather, um, all these things really were an important part of making sense of what kinds of, of, of lives enslaved people had. And so trying to put their lives in, con in conversation with the environment is the other sort of big objective of the book. Right, fascinating. Uh, how, did you how did you come up with this topic? Um, oh, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of things that, that led to this topic. Um, one, you know, is obviously I've been a historian of, of the American South and of, of slavery in a variety of forms, you know, throughout my career. Uh, but I've also been deeply interested uh, for, for many, many years in the history of the environment and in environmental justice questions. And, uh, you know, I've So in some ways, the roots of this are, are very deep-seated in, in my, my own sort of personal experience. Um, while I was writing it, of course, I'm writing it in, in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, writing in the, in, in the midst of, of a global environmental crisis. And seeing those two things in the headlines every day, I think, really drove me to sort of think about what are the relationships historically between race and slavery on the one hand and the environment on the other, try to put those in conversation with each other. Uh, the other sort of in place this came from uh, was from a, actually from an experience I had in, in the classroom. I was teaching a class on the history of the Amer American slavery uh, to our wonderful students. And uh, this was several years ago, obviously. And uh, I wanted them to read a, a fugitive slave narrative. Um, and I wanted them to read one that they hadn't read before, maybe one that told a sort of different version of the ones. So I didn't want to pick Frederick Douglass. I didn't want to pick, you know, um, you know, one that probably, you know, Harry Jacobs or something that they probably encountered before. So I settled upon having them read Charles Ball's uh, narrative. Have you read Charles Ball? Years ago, but okay. yeah, not recently. In so he, there's a couple different versions of Charles Ball's narrative, but it's one of the earliest fugitive slave narratives. Um, and uh, what's fascinating about it is how acutely he observed not only through the brutality of slavery, that was sort of the forefront of the narrative, but how he 
looked at the environment and looked at the landscape. So he talks about the trees, he talks about the soil, he talks about the effects of slavery and enslaved labor upon the soil. He talks a lot about rivers. Uh, and, and he sort of has this eye when he's writing that, that um, seemed like a naturalist to me and in the way in which he wove together um, his experience in enslavement and he's enslaved and he gets to sold multiple times and, and has, uh, you know, is able to sort of give a perspective on slavery in a number of different states um, in the in the Chesapeake, in, in the Carolinas, in Georgia, and other places. Um, and it really struck me in, in reading Charles Ball's narrative with my students, you know, that, that this was an aspect of American slavery that people have not fully explored or not explored in a sort of a global way. And so what I wanted to do with this book was to sort of take the kind of analysis that Charles Ball was doing 200 years ago uh, and, and see if I could take the, the, the huge amount of scholarship on, on slavery in the American South you know, during the colonial era all the way through the Civil War and then see if I can put that in conversation with the, the scholarship um, on environmental history. Um, and so that's where the book came from. And it was an opportunity for me to, to, to read some like, you know, sources I hadn't had a chance to work with before, but and, and to, to work with some scholarship I hadn't um, had a chance to work with before. So. Uh, fascinating. And I want to ask you about the sources but uh, and your methodology. But if we can set that aside for, the, for a moment, I, 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 I've got a different slightly different question for you, uh, building on what you've just said. You're a prolific um, and very fine scholar, David. I'm happy okay. to say that for, oh, for, for the record. Okay. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, but, but much of your work to date has been narrower in terms of its chronological scope. I don't mean narrow in terms of the questions you address, mm. but to a large extent, you've really concentrated on the antebellum and civil war period uh, in, in much of your previous scholarship. Did you find writing a broader work that spans two centuries a particular challenge? Uh, well, one thing I try to do with every new project is I try to make it sufficiently different from the last project so that I'm reading new things and, and doing new things and exercising different parts of my brain or, um, you know, just not getting bored. Uh, so I, I try very much my, when I settle on a new projects to do something different. Uh, you know, and this one I think really needed a longer time span in part because some of the changes I'm talking about in this book, you know, they don't manifest themselves in a year or two or 10. They do take, you know, a century or two to actually fully uh, unfold. So you're thinking about the effects of, of enslaved labor on soil conditions, for instance. You don't see those in a, a year or, or two, you see those over, over a course of, of generations. Um, you know, and be able to compare what different sources say about the conditions of a river in the 18th century and the 19th century allowed me to sort of document those kinds of changes. So it's a project that really, you know, required me to, to, to use a very different kind of chronological scope than, than some other things I've worked on. And it lets me go back into your period of time, which is, you know, uh, always been, uh, you know, I don't want to say my second home, but I, I've always, you know, really been fascinated by, by the colonial period, especially looking at how slavery develops during that, uh, the, you know, the 18th century, particularly. Mm -hmm. 
was that a challenge for you? I mean, you, you, it's one oh. thing to to read more widely in or read in a new field, but uh, uh, was trying to write a project that spans such a broad chronology a challenge for you to present your results? I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, to be sure. I, I, and but that's something I think I was I I wanted uh, in as much as uh, you know I, I didn't want to. Um, I mean, I see each new research project as an opportunity to 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 not only contribute something new to scholarship, but to challenge myself in a particular way by forcing myself to, to do new things and, and write in new ways. Um, and, uh, you know, to experiment with, with prose and to experiment with research methodology and organization. Um, I think that's one of the, the, the exciting things about doing historical research and writing is that you don't have to necessarily do it the same way each time you do it. Uh, and that you can, you know, uh, branch out into to new areas of you know, fields and and new modes of, of writing. So, uh, you know, and, and I'm inspired to do this by by people, you know, like um, Megan, Kate Nelson, who you know, are other people who are thinking very critically about different modes of writing and how you structure narratives and um, how you you know think about your your job as a historian and as a writer and to take those responsibilities um, both seriously, but also uh, give yourself a sense of, of an opportunity to be, to, to stretch yourself and be creative and, and to, um, you know, push yourself beyond where you're comfortable. So, so can you tell us a little bit about how the book is structured then? Sure. So uh, I structured it around uh, six natural uh, phenomenon. So there's, there's a chapter that looks on soil, uh, looking at, at soil erosion, soil degradation, and looks at mining. Uh, there's lots of enslaved mining in different parts of, of the South. There's a chapter that looks at, at animals, so both domesticated animals, wild animals, feral animals, and the ways in which those shape the lives of the enslaved. Uh, there's a chapter on trees, and the ways in which trees and forests were places of refuge for enslaved people, but also the effect that enslaved labor had on, on cutting down a huge amount of the forest land in, in the South. There's a trap chapter on uh, rivers and waterways, looking at the ways in which enslaved labor is, is uh, reshaping uh, the, the The things like uh, rivers in the south, the eruption of, of levees, the establishment of rice agriculture in South Carolina, which requires really some uh, major hydraulic engineering to, to happen. Uh, there's a chapter on weather that looks at um, things like the effects of hurricanes on the enslaved population, the effects of hot weather and cold weather, and the ways in which uh, enslaved people uh, confronted those particular uh, environmental challenges. There's a chapter on swamps, uh, and swamps are a really important site where uh, enslaved people ran away to live in swamps. Uh, there's a number of, 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 of probably most famous examples in the Great Dismal Swamp on the uh, border of Virginia, North Carolina, where hundreds of enslaved people lived in a, in a kind of freedom, but they did so in the middle of a swamp, which, as you'd imagine, is a a challenging place to live. Uh, and the final chapter of the book looks at, at emancipation and how the environment 
during the Civil War shaped emancipation and shaped what uh, freedom looked like. So what were your main sources in order to uh, tackle these different themes and the, um, especially over such a broad period of time? So, so what, what sources did you, did you read and how did you use them? What was your methodology? If you can comment on that. Sure. Uh, so you know, sort of the main body of sources that, that I was trying to use um, were the voices of the enslaved themselves. So we've got, you know, the, the fugitive slave narratives of a variety of kinds. I've mentioned Charles Ball. He was, if he, there's a main character in the book, it's him. Salma Northup, um, of who, you know, 12 years a slave. If you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie. He's a, also a very astute observer of, of the landscape. Um, he's enslaved in, for a large part of Louisiana, and, and he is a, a very acute observer. Uh, but there's lots of other uh, fugitive slave narratives that, that discuss aspects of the environment. Frederick Douglass does some, uh, John Parker. Um, so I've got a lot of accounts from enslaved people there. Uh, I've also got the, the WPA interviews done in the 1930s that, that, that also discuss people's relationship with the natural environment. And we've got obviously thousands of those interviews. So those were extraordinarily helpful in trying to, to get at the environment from the perspective of enslaved people. The other set of sources that, or the second set of sources that were really very, very helpful were by scientists and, and, and environmentalists uh, who are traveling to the American South. And so we think here about Frederick Law Olmsted, the guy who later is the architect of Central Park, he goes to the American South, he travels around and he, he comments on the, the environment. Uh, to give a Scottish example, uh, Charles Lyle, the, the uh, geologist uh, from, from Scotland, he goes to the American South to go look at rocks, but he also comments on you know, the lives of the enslaved that he sees. And you know, lots of people who are trained naturalists, you know, they, they, their ability to describe both people and places is really extraordinary. Um, and, and I found that, that they, people who were trapped visitors to the South were among the best chroniclers of, of, of the relationship between um, enslaved people and, and the landscape. Um, and there's, you know, obviously also plenty of journalists and other kinds of people are doing similar kinds of outsider observation. Um, you know, and finally, obviously, we've got the records of enslavers who, 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 some of whom are very keen observers of the landscape, others of whom are, are less so. Uh, but they are recognizing the ways in which enslaved people are, are using the landscape and how, you know, the natural environment uh, shapes, shapes their lives. So, you know, I guess those are the three categories of sources I was primarily using, the, the most important being those of, of people who were enslaved themselves. So at the outset, at the, when we began this, this chat, you mentioned the kind of wasteful agricultural practices of, of the enslavers, mm. and, you know, the, the wasteful uh, plantation agriculture uh, of, of the region. Uh, and I wonder, and my, my reading in, in um, environmental history is not as deep as yours, but I do remember reading Changes in the Land. It's the very first thing I read in graduate school, which is, of course, a classic of the, of the, of the field. Uh, and, and, of course, one of, the, one of the arguments that William Cronin makes in that book is that the 
uh, settlers of New England, for example, who were not mainly enslavers, um, mm. how wasteful their agriculture was and agricultural practices were and how they transformed the land without really re necessarily realizing what they were doing. Uh, is, is there something, do you think that there's something inherent in uh, the slave-based slave agriculture that makes it worse or is this just a feature of settler society in North America in the 17th, sorry, in the 18th and 19th centuries where there's a seeming abundance of land, a relative shortage of labor, and uh, they're, they're not all that concerned about it. So, so I'm wondering, is this, is yeah, this, so I think, is this, yeah. this degradation inherent to sl in slavery or is it inherent in settler colonialism? Um, so I think it's inherent in settler colonialism, but I think slavery adds a particular dimension to it in as much as enslavers saw their wealth in terms of the people they owned and not the land. Land is cheap and replaceable. People are, are where their wealth is. And they saw this a, a, a opportunity to constantly have a new frontier for slavery. So once they've exploited the land in Virginia, they can go to Georgia. Once they go to Georgia and they've wasted that, they can go to Alabama. And once they've gone to Alabama, they can go to Mississippi and they can continue pushing further westward. And, you know, when we talk about Western expansion during the 18th and 19th centuries, I think slave owners are some of the most, the loudest voices for westward expansion, because I think they recognize that, this, that the slavery as an institution requires expansion. In fact, they, they talk about this pretty, pretty explicitly, that, that slavery needs to grow in order for it to exist. And, um, you know, the, the fact that, that they, they can abandon land and go find a new place to settle. And, and you know, for instance, uh, your, your man, Thomas Jefferson, talks about this. He says that, you know, in the 18-teens and 1820s, look, all of my neighbors have left and moved to Alabama because that's where the fresh soil is. That's where the next frontier is. And, you know, some people say, look, well, you can fertilize your, your crop, your, your soil hill and rejuvenate it in Virginia. There's various movements to, to uh, rejuvenate soils in, in these sort of worn out sectors. And some people do it and some people don't, but most of them do the math and say it's easier for me to take my enslaved community, relocate it to the next part of the slave frontier. That's cheaper to buy new land than it is to fertilize old land. And one of the things that, you know, people like Charles Ball, when he's taken in bondage from Maryland down to the Carolina, he passes through what had been the home of the planter class in Virginia a century earlier. And he describes, basically, he says, look, this, these are just ruins here. This is a ruined landscape. The land doesn't grow anything. There's shrub oak and nothing else grows here because this land has been farmed to death. And then once it no longer had any value, the people who own this land and own the people on this land decide to move, pack up and move somewhere else. Um, and so I think there's something very particular about the, the kind of the, the calculus that enslavers are doing where they say, look, we can always just get new, we can always buy new land, we can always acquire new land, and the new land will be so profitable for us that we can acquire 
people to acquire more land. Um, and, and so I think there is something very particular about land use and environmental exploitation that comes with slavery. Interesting, interesting. Uh, is it all that different though than what we're seeing in the Northwest, for example, or, or what will be called the, the, the old Northwest, which is the Midwest yeah. today, and then, and then out onto the plains and so on with, with so-called free labor uh, practices and agriculture? Uh, it's, I think there, there is a difference in part because of the kinds of command of labor that enslavers had and the ways in which they could, you know, at a command order a hundred people or 200 people to cut down an entire forest so they could plant tobacco there next year, which is very different than the kinds of, of, of labor practices that existed in Ohio or Wisconsin. Right. Um, to be sure, you know, the, the history of, of land use by, by white Americans in, in the 18th and 19th century is there's, there's, there's very few good stories there about, about, uh, about how the land survives. But I think there, there's some very particular ways here in which, uh, you know, I think the brutality of slavery and the brutality of the way in which the land is treated are, are, are connected. Um, you know, once you tell somebody you own another person, you can do with them whatever you want to. That gives you a kind of license to to exploit them and to exploit the land that, that I think is, is particular to slavery. Could you comment a little bit on your writing process? You're a very prolific historian, David. And, and um, no, I admire you for that, among other things. Uh, but how, how, what's your writing process? And in particular, uh, you wrote most of this book, I assume, during the pandemic. And so how did that affect your, your writing? Uh, I, I finished the book during the pandemic. I started it, um, the research for this book in, doing some quick mental math here, 2018, I think. Um, so the, the book before this that, that I wrote about surrender and the Civil War was published in 2019, but given how, you know, the, the rate in which books are published, I was able to do some research on this book before that one was um, at the press. And so I was able to do some, some archival work uh, in, in the United States in um, you know, 2018 and especially in 2019. Uh, and so I was able to gather a lot of the resources I needed for this project then. Um, and one of the things that I, I, you know, recognized in designing this project is to one degree I needed to do archival work and I needed to visit particular places to see the landscape, seeing the landscape that I think matters, um, seeing the ways in which the Piedmont of Virginia is different than the low country of South Carolina is different from Texas, you know, so I need to be able to get, get you know, my feet on the ground in particular. Uh, but I also recognize the extent to which one can do research and, and do meaningful original research uh, uh, without leaving Scotland. Um, one of the considerations I had in writing this book is I didn't want to have a huge carbon footprint for writing a book about the environment. Because um, that seemed to be... Uh, 
problematic. Uh, you know, and so, you know, luckily many of the, the both the, the sources I was using have been published and digitized and, and those that weren't, I was able to, to uh, rely on the, the kindness of archivists who were able to, to scan stuff for me and, and send this, uh, things to me here. Um, and I found that in, in things I've been working on since uh, this book uh, was sort of put to bed that um, the, the quality of research one can do without necessarily uh, you know, leaving one's flat is actually uh, a lot better than it was even five years ago. I think we're in a very different place with, with the sort of research environment, um, thankfully. Yeah, well, I won't comment on the fact that I just flew from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. We'll just leave that aside for the moment. <laughs> but uh, what was the biggest challenge you faced in writing the book? And what's your writing day look like? How do you oh, my writing your, your time? And, oh, geez. My, my, it, it's, um, I often do my best writing in the morning. I, I get up, I'm, I wouldn't say early, but, but moderately early. And, and I find I, I get my best writing done before noon. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very much of the slow and steady wins the race kind of writing. So I sort of write 500 words a day and, and some of them are good and some of them are not. And, um, I find that writing as a, as a process helps me understand what the research is I need to do. Um, you know, so some people do the, a lot of research and then they do a lot of writing and I tend to sort of mix and match as, as I'm able to. So I sort of wrote each chapter of this separately uh and and um you know once i had finished a chapter then i started on on the next one um and uh you know if you write 500 words a day you've got a manuscript done in a year theoretically um so you know that that's sort of the, the process I, there's nothing particularly uh, magical or interesting about it. I was able to do a lot of work with the benefits of the National Library of Scotland, though for our, our, our local listeners, uh, you know, there are their, their resources there are great. And obviously the, the university's library has a, is a very good collection and uh, in her library loans, a magical thing. And uh, yeah, you know, the biggest challenge for me in terms of writing this is I, you know, I've written about the history of slavery in a variety of ways. Um, you know, th throughout my career, but I'm not an environmental historian by training or, or, or background. I, I've had an interest in environmental history, but I've never um, studied it in a formal way. So sort of trying to come up to speed with what environmental history was and what environmental history is now. You know, it's a field like any other that has evolved tremendously over um, years and how can I you know write a book that's got environmental history in the in the title or at least in the subtitle uh you know without being a you know uh quote unquote environmental historian by uh by orientation so I had to sort of read a lot of background and sort of make sure I was doing the that kind of history right and and to know I'm doing that kind of science right you know the environmental history is very science inflected and so knowing about soils and knowing about trees and knowing about um you know biology and all these other kinds of things that i hadn't really thought about in a serious way since high school um you know i had i had to reacquaint myself with that so that was a challenge but uh kind of a welcome one i guess 
So, David, whenever we write books, there's always something, at least history books, nonfiction monographs, uh, hmm. there's always something that you wanted to include that you, that you ended up having to leave out in the end, right? Something, you know, a kind of something that it, it should be in the director's cut, right? Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so what did you leave out that you wish it had space to include? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a, it's a, that's a tricky question. Um, you know, there, there was part of me that wanted to take this there, there, there's parts in the, the, the last chapter and, and the conclusion that takes the story into reconstruction. Um, and, and, and there was part of me that very much wanted to take the story. What, what is, the black environmental vision in freedom look like um, and to continue the story in that way. Uh, and I tried to write parts in, of that, but then I realized that may be a different book uh, and a, sort of a different project and a different set of, of problems uh, to deal with. I, I figured dealing with 200 years was enough for, for a book that's slightly under 300 pages. Um, you know, and, and So I had to sort of cut that. There were some sciencey kinds of things that I, I had tried to write. And then I realized that, that, that writing about science and especially writing about the sort of chemical effects of certain kinds of, uh, of soil erosion, effects of, of, of river pollution uh, and, and what have you, uh, doing that effectively it requires a set of, a particular set of skills to do that well. And I'm not quite sure I had those particular sets of skills to articulate the, the, the sort of more science-y elements of environmental history in that kind of way. So I had written some bits about, uh, you know, nitrogen roles of and versus phosphate in the soils and, and things. And, and, and I decided that that wasn't necessarily central to the story that I tried very much to um, understand the landscape as enslaved people would have understood the landscape. And at the same time, recognizing that there were processes taking place that, that you know, weren't necessarily visible uh, to contemporaries. Fascinating. So before we go to last drops, David, could you uh, could you just give us the details of the book again so that so that listeners will be able to find it? So, sure. So this is Dan Silvernot, and <laughs> give me give us the, uh, yes, yes. So the, the, the title <laughs> the title of the book is "Scars on the Land: An Environmental History of Slavery in the American South," published by Oxford University Press. They are running a discount right now. You can get it at forty percent off. I'll put the the coupon code in the in the show notes so people can buy it for themselves and their all of their closest friends and 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 distant relatives and enemies and whatnot because i'm sure uh, earth day is coming up and everyone needs a copy um at least that's what i hope uh, well, david but, yeah, thank this you a hard... so much yeah <laughs> oh well i'm glad i could be on the show that's very kind <laughs> And congratulations. Yes, I think so this thank is you. Really, I think this is, I mean, I, I've read your work and I love your work, but I, I think this is your best work to date. And I think it's really important. So congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. I've been, oh, you know, this was, this was in some ways the hardest book to write partially for the reasons we've talked about methodologically and otherwise, but it was a hard book to write 
given how much I saw what I was writing about was in the news every day when I was writing it, to think about how, what is the legacy of, of slavery as an institution? What, what, is the, what are the effects that that have had on the United States, not only during its, the 200 years in which there was legal slavery, but the ways in which the effects of, of slavery continue to reverberate in, in American society and to think about you know, the, the roots of the current environmental crisis and, and where those come from. Um, you know, the, the, the themes of the book seemed um, sort of inescapable when I was writing, you know, even when I wasn't dealing with the sources from the 18th century, I was turning on the news and, and hearing about hurricanes destroying, you know, Southern towns and, and thinking about, the, you know, the, and thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and what have you. So, so it, was, it, was a, it was a very challenging book to write in, in that respect. Well, thank you, David, for your efforts. Oh. Well, I hope people enjoy the book, even if it's, uh, as you point out, it's part of my, my misery uh, series. Well, <laughs> it was a trilogy before, now it's a quadrilogy or something, but there's, I'm gonna write a book about butterflies and happiness someday. So yeah, David, I think you need to write the great big book of Civil War humor next or something just, like yeah. that. <laughs> it doesn't really, it's not my move. Uh, right, time for last drops, Frank. Uh, give, give us something. Right. Uh, well, I've got I've got two things. So so as you mentioned, today is is April sixth. So it is the it is Tartan Day in the here in the United States. The Tartan Day Parade will be held in New York, or it's Tartan Week here in the United States. The it's all week Day now, Parade. Jesus Christ. Okay. It will be held in, in New York on Saturday, and I shall be marching up Sixth Avenue with the University of Edinburgh delegation, and we will enjoy ourselves, and that's wonderful. Uh, but it's time for my um, twice yearly reminder that there is absolutely no connection between the Declaration of Arbroath and the American. Declaration of Independence. I've ranted about this at great length before. I'm not going to rant about it at length this morning. I'm, I'm too tired to do so. Long time listeners will have heard this rant. Yeah. 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 So if you go, go back to previous episodes around the 4th of July or the 6th of April in, in the previous years and you'll have heard it. So you don't need to hear me say it again. I will say I did go to the National Archives yesterday and see the original of the Declaration of Independence. It was a wet cold day here in Washington DC it was it's a was midweek it was quiet or it was a weekday it was early in the week and so I, I just went over yesterday morning and uh, walked down to the National Archives and went up to the rotunda and saw the uh, Declaration of Independence the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in, in their original form and it was it was actually um, quite a it was it was it was a quite a nice experience in part because it wasn't very crowded so I didn't have to wait to go in uh, yeah. or I had to wait like two minutes uh that's great uh, yeah so yeah so the declaration of independence is on my mind uh, but the thing that's always struck me about when i've ever i've, I've gone to the national Arc to see it, it is the way in which people treat the documents in a as almost like a sacred relics there's a there's a there's a certain kind of religiosity that's embedded in that space like you're going to a temple that's right. I mean, it's, you know, and, and historians have noted for, for, you know, about the civic religion aspects of, of American patriotism. And, and you certainly get that feeling as you go in there. It does feel like going to church. Yeah. Um, Despite that, you can't even read the pieces of paper because the ink is really faded. And... Yeah, that's right. That's right. But people are, are really, uh, yeah, reverential. It's, a, it, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. But, but I was also... 
it was uplifting at the same time yesterday because there were people from all over the world and they were taking this seriously. And I don't know what motivated all of them to be there. You know, maybe they were bored and wanted to get out of the rain. But, uh, um, <laughs> you know, but, but, but it was interesting that people chose to be there and, and people were um, respectful. There's a kind of security guard who was standing there before we went in who gave us a little briefing. Um, at the very entrance to the rotunda, because they they hold you a little bit to let the crowd thin out a little bit mm. before they let you in. And again, yesterday it wasn't very crowded, so it was fine. And you know, she said, uh, you know, we've got three three rules here: no photographs. Don't even think about taking your phone out. You know, you can't take photographs, and that's because they have to protect the documents. And and uh, so so absolutely no photographs. Uh, Basically, be patient with each other. Be nice because these documents belong to all of us. So give everybody time to look, mm. <laughs> um, which was good. And be kind. <laughs> and and I thought that kind of captured the the spirit of the place, at least as it felt yesterday. Again, it wasn't midsummer. You know, I'm sure I don't agree with everybody who was in there in terms of their politics. <laughs> I'm sure many of the people in that room didn't necessarily agree with me. Um, but but there was a kind of this is where that quasi religiosity is important, I think, because it's 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 the thing. These are the these documents are the representation of the principles that allegedly mm. bind, bind us together as a nation. Um, and and so yeah, it, it was quite moving actually. So so yeah, I did that yesterday. But 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 my real last drop. Sorry, David. I'm on my my third item now. <laughs> That's okay. Um, the CBC, I, I saw a piece on the CBC uh, recently that, that appeared a couple of days ago on CBC Radio News on their website about the discovery of an indigenous eyewitness account of the Battle of Little Bighorn, which was found in a museum collection in Ontario. Um, so this is a, this is a, it's a complicated but very interesting story where basically an archivist at the Peel Museum in, in Brampton, Ontario, um, discovered a document written in Old German that provides a first-hand account of the Battle of Little Bighorn from 1876, which we talked about, a, I referenced briefly in a previous episode a week or so ago. And the story of this document is that it was, it's an account by uh, a Lakota man named uh, Standing Bear, and Standing Bear was a 17-year-old who fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn. This account was written by his wife, Louise Standing Bear, who was born in Austria. Huh. And uh, I'll get to that in a second. And it's an account that she wrote down. It's his account that she wrote in uh, old German in the in the um, 1930s that made its way to a museum in 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 Ontario. It's since been repatriated um, to the Lakota people, and and it, it's a fascinating account. But the, the their story is interesting. So, uh, Standing Bear's um, first wife and daughter were killed by the United States government. They were murdered at that Wounded Knee in 1890 um, in in the Wounded Knee massacre. He, uh, in the early 1890s, was uh, traveling in Europe as a member of Buffalo Bill's Wild sure. West show, which is when he met his uh, second wife, Louise, who became Louise Standing Bear, his Austrian wife. And so there's a kind of really interesting story there. And he provides this firsthand indigenous account of the of the Battle of Little Bighorn, and which are 
very rare, unsurprisingly. Mm, um, and, and there's a wonderful story about this on, on the CBC website. We can share the link on, on the web page as well, on oh, the great. show page. So, so it's a really, really interesting story uh, on all kinds of levels. So, so I, this, this definitely caught my attention this week, and I thought it was a really interesting story. So I would commend this to people. Very cool. All right. It's always good what to about, get new sources. Yeah. Um, what about you, David? What's your last drop? Oh, well, I want a, a story that I heard on NPR about, uh, I guess it's also a kind of archival story and sources. It's about uh, wax cylinders at the New York Public Library. Um, I know you know this, Frank, but for, for listeners who aren't familiar with wax cylinders, these are a recording technology from the 1890s, uh, pioneered by Thomas Edison and other people. Um, that's sort of a precursor for records. And so it's a, a literal wax cylinder. It looks a bit like a, a toilet paper tube in terms of what its sort of shape and size is. And what's, and it's literally made of, of wax and it makes their, their etchings in, in the wax to, to record the sound. Uh, and what's fascinating about wax cylinder technology was one of the, not only could you purchase wax cylinders that have recordings of music on it or what have you, but the, the machine allowed you to record uh, yourself at home. So you could, there were home recordings on wax cylinders. The problem with wax cylinders is that they, as you imagine, being made of, of mostly of wax, they are very fragile. You can only play them a handful of times before they basically stop working. They tend to get warped and uh, crack and have all kinds of issues. Uh, so, there, so, you know, there are lots of archives that have these things, but you basically can't play them. Uh, well, the New York Public Library has acquired uh, a, a machine that uses a laser to help read these things. And so they've got this huge store of wax cylinders from the 1890s that they are going to digitize. And some of them are going to turn out to be commercial recordings, but some of them are going to be, you know, home birthday parties or who knows what. Mm. Um, and so, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're going to, and most of them that they've got don't have labels, they don't know what they are. And so it's going to be a surprise to the archivist when they stick them in the machine and, and try to figure out, you know, what's on these, these wax cylinders. Um, you know, people often, Edison said, like when he was advertising things, said, folk, you can record the last words of a dying person on these things. Um, I don't know whether that's what they're going to find, but it's a sort of fascinating story about this source that was uh, you know, largely inaccessible to us that we're now going to get access to. And they say it's going to take a few years to digitize all these things, but uh, everybody around the world can listen to uh, birthday parties from the 1890s or, or whatever these things turn out to be. Or deathbed confessions. Deathbed confessions. <laughs> exactly. Um, great. Till next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 